Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to be looking at some subjects that, well, are very rarely visited, but doesn't mean that they shouldn't be. One is the actual constituent parts of the United Nations. We all regard the United Nations as this leading body, uh, global in nature, of course, and able to address or at least seek to be able to address many of the world issues and global problems facing us going back to its formation um, at the end of World War II, basically. And, well, we've also had one of the uh, formulators, one of the original inspiring voices behind the formation of the United Nations, Robert Mueller, on our uh, TV show going back some years now, and we've also had today's guest on before as well, Dr. Glenn Martin, who will be speaking about the Earth Constitution and its relevance to the United Nations, or perhaps as an adjunct, or perhaps even in part as a replacement of the current United Nations Charter. So we have some very interesting things to talk about, and you will find the basis of Glenn Martin's comments and entire proposition to be very, very interesting, and I think extremely germane to a future that could be ours based on peace, based on well-being, a spiritual sense and propriety. Uh, propriety of values and sustainability. Just a bit on Glenn. He is a PhD, a professor of philosophy at Radford University in Virginia, where he has been teaching for well over 25 years. He is the founder and chair emeritus of the program in peace studies there. He is president of International Philosophy Philosophers, sorry, for Peace and President of the World Constitution and Parliament Association, which is a worldwide organization that sponsors the Constitution for the Federation of Earth. We don't have enough voices speaking directly for the Earth these days, so it's truly an honor and a pleasure to invite Glenn Martin back to a better world, this time for the first time on radio. Glenn Martin, glad to have you back. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, good. I interviewed you so many years back, it's hard to even remember, but we were gathered at the United Nations for some event, and uh, we were in some kind of spin-off group, and I joined you and others at a local hotel and did a series of interviews with you and your colleagues on something that was all fresh and new to me at the time. Um, So you really... Uh, 
illuminated me in so many ways with the whole prospect of the World Constitution and Parliament Association. So I, I thank you for that. I would love to bring our audience in on the conversation and uh, get a little updated on first what it is and what are its implications for our future. Now that we are especially in this particularly thorny time of dealing with so many issues directly regarding the earth such as global warming and what we refer to as climate change so do you want to pick up and just frame this and so we have a can get a footing here about what the world constitution is and what the earth constitution is Uh, uh, let me just go back even a little further uh, to the movement that began during World War One, which was a movement for democratic world government. It was begun by the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And they, oh, they began to realize that World War One, all these nations slaughtering one another, was not good nations versus bad nations, but it was a, it was the system itself, the system of militarized sovereign nations recognizing no law above themselves. Uh, mm. And the movement continued between the wars and, and grew rapidly. Uh, and then with the Second World War, the movement probably reached a groundswell. Uh, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there were many, you know, there were hundreds of world federalist organizations, uh, many of them working together in big meetings about this and so on. Uh, and some of them, the UN had just been created, uh, 1945, and some of them thought we must, we should be reforming the UN because uh, they, it's a treaty basically of sovereign nations, and and it really is not democratic, uh, and they wanted to reform it in the direction of having more legal authority and so on. So uh, part of the group went there. And then there were another group. Uh, but did some of that group in, did some of yeah. that group manage to influence that formation of the UN, or not really? Uh, no, not really. Um, the the UN, of course, founded in as you know in San Francisco. Uh, it only had about fifty participants at that time, uh, but it was they did not uh, significantly influence the structure of it because it ended up not having power, right? The U.N. has not been able to stop war, not protect the environment, and not protect mm-hmm. human rights. Uh, and, well, certainly and, uh, not the way that we had hoped, that's for sure. But, you know, yeah. is maybe you could clear this up, Glenn. There's uh, the general understanding that the United Nations was formed out of its uh, antecedent of the League of Nations, also formed yeah. by during World War One. So, what is the relationship between the the women's development of the League and the League of Nations? Uh, I couldn't tell you of any direct. I don't know of any direct influence. So, the the League of Nations or relationship. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Again, uh, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom was a global. Uh, civil society organization, you know, and uh, these have all been, and the movement in between the wars was largely civil society. Now, there were a few legislators 
members of various parliaments that were interested and wanted to participate. But largely it's been global civil society that's been pushing for this. But the nations are locked up. You know, they're locked up in this. Uh, we only recognize official uh, uh, members of other nations. Yeah, in, yeah. in global civil society, if you go to the the events of nations, uh, they have big big uh, tents and they say welcome global civil society. But global civil society has zero votes, you know, zero effectiveness, uh, very little chance yeah. to really talk to delegates. It's a, it's a system of nations that only recognize nations, right? Governments recognizing governments. Yeah. Well, I but remember anyway, you actually, in the, one of the things that I feel I uh, really learned from you back when we met 20-some-odd years ago, I don't actually remember the date. I have it somewhere buried in my notes. Uh, you referenced the Security Council as a very overt example of how the United Nations was structured in a way not to be fair but to privilege a small group of nations over others, which seemed to be contrary to the original purport and vision of what a united nation sounds like. And it was really the first time I took that into consideration. And ever since, I've had to say, you're absolutely right. The United Nations really is not an egalitarian body in any way, shape, or form. It's really a continuation and furtherance of the idea of uh, promoting individual sovereign nations. Yeah, yes. and you've yeah, been onto another path for the longest time. That's correct. Yeah. The five permanent members on the Security Council – uh, U.S., Britain, France, China, and Russia, um, um, uh, it, uh, gave them all, themselves all a permanent veto power over anything yeah. the U.N. does, right? yeah. over anything. So the, and so anything yes. the UN, Anything for over, example, for instance, the General Assembly, which, as you could say, is more like our uh, – House of Representatives, you know, and then there's the social, the Security Council, which is a little bit more perhaps like the Senate, if you want to draw any analogs. Well, no, the Security Council is what they dominate, right? They, anything, there's only one house in the UN, and that's the General Assembly. And that's the General saying. Assembly, yeah. 193 representatives, they could vote uh, 100%. For some resolution, say, so trying to uh, stop the Israeli-Palestinian terror nightmare right. that's been going on for so long. And any yes. one of those five nations on the Security Council can veto it, and it goes nowhere. Can veto it. Same like the Senate can veto anything that passes the House 100%. The Senate doesn't even have to put it up for the vote, for a vote. yeah. yeah. That's what that was the parallel I was seeking to establish. But you know, that's secondary. The main thing is that other voices get drowned out. It is not egalitarian. So what have you proposed? Tell us a little bit about the Earth Constitution and your proposal to have that replace the UN Charter. Yeah, so out of that movement after the Second World War, there were one group 
uh, in the United States uh, that said what the world needs most of all is a constitution for the earth, one that we can all examine, we can come to agreement on, that has provisions for ratification. So they, beginning in 1958, they they began holding meetings and contacting uh, uh, people known as world citizens around the world from many countries. And mm-hmm. in 1968, they had a big meeting in Interlaken, Switzerland, where uh, they planned out the people participating there uh, gave a, uh, uh, elected a drafting committee and gave that committee the charge of putting so many things. They had a list of things that should be in the Constitution. And that drafting committee worked uh, interacting with the people by mail and so on uh, for mm-hmm. uh, 10 years. And then they, uh, they had another big uh, meeting, 1979, uh, where the, they came together. This was in Innsbruck, Austria. And they came together, and uh, they went over the Constitution uh, paragraph by paragraph, and the people voted on it, and it was uh, people were dancing in the aisles. They thought they had uh, hmm. they had created something so valuable Wonderful. for the people of Earth, yeah. the future of the Earth. Uh, they and probably did. There were the thing. Yeah, they, I think they did. Yes, I, I'm now yeah. president of. Yeah, they did this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, uh, so, there, but there, you know, people kept talking about it. They kept promoting it. At that time, the world headquarters was in Denver, Colorado, and under Philip Isley, who's now well known for doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, small criticisms about wording, order, and so on uh, kept arising. So they held a final, what they call, constituent assembly in Troia, Portugal, in 1991. They made a lot of small changes, nothing substantive, but a lot of small changes to the Constitution. And then they declared it finished and ready for ratification. I think that's very powerful because it means that the people of Earth have before them a document which is not just a a suggestion, not just a set of ideals like the Earth Charter, you know, which is online, but it's a Mm -hmm. document that they can actually study and work toward ratification. And if we can ratify this document, it would end this nightmare that we've been living in for 100 years at least, of perpetual war, climate destruction, violation of human rights, It's a document designed to create global democracy, effective global democracy. So beautiful. Who would you you be seeking to have ratify it? Who? Uh, Everybody. Article 17, if if it's going to be a world document, it's got to have the people of Earth doing this. uh, So it's really uh, just the... Human beings be, uh, of every yeah. sort, size, shape, and stripe. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, and how would Article we 70- gather, uh, let's say, um, kind of international recognition? That's what it would take. Uh, Article seventeen gives a kind of a variable formula, right? It isn't just one formula, but in 
in any variation of the formula, it requires massive uh, decision on the part of people. Uh, but Article 17 also gives three stages of ratification. And the uh, so there's a first stage when 25 nations, the one of the part of the formula is 25 nations could come together and start it. And then these 25 okay. nations would join together in a federation. They wouldn't abolish national boundaries, but they become a federation, just like the United States is a federation, right? It's not a world federation, yes. but it's a national federation of 50 states. Yes, states, right. Yeah, so right. they would come I together, and uh, they would initiate the parliament, the world parliament, and uh, the democratic procedures under the Constitution, uh, the World Emergency um, Environmental Rescue Organization, because, uh, you know, we're, we need to deal with the environment very effectively and rapidly. Uh, they would begin de demilitarizing because the world constitution ultimately prohibits military. And mm -hmm. and then... I wanted to if, go to that and then they would, yeah. Mm -hmm. And our, the assumption is, once this happens... The other nations in the world would see how that they have an out from this kind of terrible world that we've been living in for the over a hundred years. Yeah, they mm -hmm. would, and they would start joining like mad, right? So I there's see. a second second stage of authority when fifty percent of the nations in the world have um, joined, and then there's a third stage, a final stage when ninety percent of uh, the nations and equivalent to 90% of the people in the world have joined this, and then it becomes uh, truly worldwide, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the Earth Federation government has dominion over our planet, and our planet becomes a place of peace and justice and human rights protection and environmental sustainability. So That's what the vision are of Article 7. Yes. What could you lay? I mean, you've already laid out some of it sort of through the back door here uh, by talking about it through that lens of that particular article. But could you just lay out, Glenn, what is the fundamental premise of it and just walk us through some of the constituent parts of the Earth uh, Federation Constitution so we can understand and compare it to the UN Charter, which you say has not been acted upon, it's not been executed, it's very hopeful, but it's really more like a wish than it is a possible executable document. Um, okay, the, the, the Earth Constitution uh, begins with Article 1, which describes the broad functions of the Earth Federation government that it's creating. And the broad functions, the first one is to end war and begin the process of disarmament for the world. Right? Mm -hmm. The second one is to protect universal human rights. And there's two bills of human rights in the Constitution that cover everything, including, and this is very important, Mitch, including... Mm -hmm the right to peace, and the right to a sustainable, healthy environment, right? Mm -hmm. these, are, these rights are not in the, uh, even in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 
right? They're mm-hmm. called third-generation rights because how are we going to have uh, the right, uh, you know, any other rights unless we have peace and a healthy environment on the planet? You know, yes. they're foundational. Yes. So, so uh, and then it has a separate article there in Article 1, a separate uh, uh, sub-article, that the mandate is to protect the global environment to make the earth a healthy and happy place for everybody. So the framework is that nations are not abolished, but that we need a global public authority to deal with global problems that are beyond the scope of all the nations, in any nation. Right? No nation on earth can protect the global environment by itself, right? Yes. No nation on earth can protect universal human rights by itself, right? And no nation can war. It requires all of us working together to create a decent world. So what you're really saying is that your form, nations still have their own respective place, location, cultures, That's right. But the governance of all nations are, in a sense, pulled out of the locality and made global. Well, how would the, imagine there would still be some, there would still be local politics? How would there be an interface between that body, the universal, or I should say, the global parliament, Glenn, and local politics? Well, uh, as I I mentioned a moment ago, uh, you know, there's a close analogy between the U.S. federal government and the states, right? The states in the U.S. don't have their own militaries, right? They don't uh, significantly violate human rights that are protected by the U.S. Constitution because it's against Mm -hmm. the federal law. And it Mm -hmm. would be the same with uh, all the nations of the world would within the World Federation. And, Mitch, the uh, the World Parliament has three houses. It's a parliamentary system, right? There isn't mm-hmm. one president. You know, there isn't one executive branch that dominates everything like there is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's a parliamentary system. And the World Parliament has three houses. Uh, the first house is called the House of Peoples, which has 1,000 representatives from 1,000 electoral districts worldwide. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the people of Earth have direct representation. That's similar to our House of Representatives in the U.S. Yes. You know, uh, mm-hmm. by, by population, people elect people to the House of Representatives. The second house is called the House of Counselors, and... I won't go into it, but they're nominated by uh, students and faculty worldwide and elected by a certain process, democratic process, so that you get 200 people known for their wisdom and their expertise and their integrity uh, in this House of Counselors, right, Mm -hmm. 200. uh, And then there's a third house called the House of Nations, and every nation on earth as a representative in the House of Nations, uh, small nations have one representative, medium-sized nations two, and 
and the large nations like the U.S. and so on and larger have have uh, three. So the House of Nations has direct representation from each of the nations, right? The nations still have have governance over their internal affairs as long as they don't violate human rights or destroy the environment and or promote war, you know. Those are the main things. So yes. it's it's a world federation uh with creating a global an effective global public authority giving us effective, enforceable, democratically legislated laws that addresses the global problems that are beyond the scope. Right now, they're beyond the scope of the U.N. and beyond the scope of the nations. No one can solve mm-hmm. these problems unless we on Earth join together and have an authority that can deal with them. That's right. Well, you know, the COP meetings in respect to uh, global warming and dealing with this issue was one outcropping of this kind of idea, and we also see that it hasn't been very effective. Going back to Rio, in the first meeting of them, actually the first meeting was, I believe it was in Sweden, because Robert Mueller, who I happen to know, and you probably do too, was part of that original first United Nations uh, sponsored meeting about dealing with the environment. I think that was in the early 70s. I'm not sure. Uh, But nonetheless, I mean, this whole thing is completely provocative and wonderful in the best of possible ways, Glenn, and I'm so glad to have you on talking about this again and reacquainting me with the uh, wisdom and intelligence of it. And it's uh, reminding me and catalyzing all sorts of thoughts uh, one is of a letter that I wrote to Bill Clinton when he was first elected, even though I had nothing to do with his uh, nom- his nomination or his uh, presidency because I did not vote for him. And I told him that in my letter. It sounds so funny. This was in the years when before email, basically. Um, I wrote him a you know a typed letter saying, look. I don't know if you're the guy to discuss this with, but I at least appreciate that you uh, have the good common sense to not want to go to war. I consider that a good thing. I consider it a little odd that you'd say you didn't inhale. I won't talk about that. And I think it's good that you play saxophone. (laughs) So I'm going to basically think of you as one of mine, you know, as a hippie. You know, a peace-loving person is really what I'm talking about with good, humane values. I said the first thing you should do if you really want to build a great nation here is apologize to all of the ethnicities and all of the groups that this country has not only offended but has sought to decimate or enslave or imprison in one way or another. Uh, This was my letter, and I'm not going to go into it all in depth, but I will say one thing. I said, and you should beg the native peoples of this nation to be a cabinet level member of a house of elder, a group of elders to counsel oh, you. Yeah. Uh-huh. I wrote that to him in 1994. Was it four that he. Uh, uh-huh. 80, yeah, 92, very nice. 94. 
Yeah, yeah. And I actually got a letter back, not, you know, not with his writing, but a thank you letter from the White House. And uh-huh. I did find out subsequently that he made some level, not what I have, would have wanted, apology to indigenous people of America. And so uh-huh. I thought, wow, there's some power in letter writing, you know. Anyway, I just thought I would share that with you because it's uh, so aligned with some of your – when you talked about the House of Counselors, that's what I thought of. Would you also right. include indigenous peoples? It seems a little biased, with all due respect, to having just university professors and students no, vote they're, they're them as I may. students are the ones denominating. They nominate. Oh, doing they the nominating. Oh, I'm want. sorry. Oh, they okay. could nominate uh, uh, wise people from indigenous tribes if they wanted. Okay. Oh, thank you. I didn't get that part of it. They're the ones who doing the, are doing the nominating, not necessarily right. of themselves, although they, they're not excluded. Yeah, okay. the election people of Earth, you know, of these people. Yeah. But the, U, the, the UN, I think it's important uh, to emphasize that the UN is basically a treaty of sovereign nations, right? Which in the very definition of sovereignty, which has been there uh, ever since this whole system was formulated in 1648 uh, in Germany at the Peace of Westphalia, the whole definition of sovereignty is makes this self-contradictory because a sovereign nation, by definition, recognizes no authority above itself. That's what sovereignty means, an ultimate authority, right? So the sovereign government of the United States is in Washington, D.C. There's no higher authority, right? But but by that very token, the sovereign nations generate something called international law, which is not really law. It's unenforceable. The powerful nations ignore it at will. Right. Every day the U.S. ignores it. They're ignoring it by blockading Cuba, by blockading Venezuela. Those are against international law. Their their, um, relationships with Iran, threatening Iran, uh, sanctioning Iran, sanctioning Russia, all of that violates international law. Interesting. So The Hague, in other words, only has power subordinate to the sovereignty of respective nations. The, yeah, the, the 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 UN is lo, you know located in Geneva, Vienna, and New York City, the three main centers. Uh, and the Hague has the courts, right? The International Court, yes. the uh, um, the International Court of Justice, and the International Criminal Court. And in mm-hmm. uh, both of those courts, uh, the International Criminal Court was not is linked to the U.N., but is not part of the U.N. It was founded by the Assembly of States parties, who a group of nations now, up to 120 nations, who say we need to be able to prosecute individuals who violate, you know, um, world law through genocide and so on. Uh, But nevertheless, it does not have uh, authority over these nations. It has... It doesn't have the power of mandamus, that is, the power to uh, identify some criminal, bring charges, and have them arrested and bring them to the court. It can only do that with the agreement 
of the nations in the Assembly of States parties who uh, the nation where this suspect lives has to be able to agree to make that happen. Right? So it retains the sovereignty of the nations. It has no authority higher than that sovereignty. And the same with the International Court of Justice, which uh, doesn't deal with individuals uh, who have committed uh, war crimes and so on, but deals with nations. Right? Nations can come before the International Court of Justice if they have a beef with other nations, but it has to be consensual. Right? No nation can force another nation to come before it on their court. And they have to agree when they come to it to abide by the court. But if the court makes a decision, it can enforce it. Now, for example, when uh, the U.S. was attacking Nicaragua through the Contra terrorists during the 1980s, right, uh, Nicaragua... Yeah. Uh, charged the United States in the International Court of Justice. It charged it with war crimes and aggression and so on. And the U.S. thinking, I guess thinking its lawyers were so great, they, they agreed to come to the uh, court and argue it, right? And the court mm -hmm. decided in favor of Nicaragua and filed and fined the United States billions of dollars in damages. Mm -hmm. Right? They said, do you, do you, you know, the U.S. is guilty, uh, as Nicaragua was charging. The U.S. is guilty, and w there was this tremendous fine. Guess how much of that has been paid? Zero. Nothing. Zero. Exactly. Zero. Right. And uh, so there's no so this enforcement. Is what, this is yeah. what it means to have a United Nations system of sovereign nations and two courts that have to respect the sovereignty of the nations they're dealing with, you cannot have enforceable world law under those circumstances. Yet, the former Yugoslav president, who was also charged with war crimes, as I recall, did go to that court, did abide, was arrested, was found guilty, and is serving time. He's dead now, Milosevic. And now dead, uh, yes. Yeah. But the but, point but, is uh, that the system was utilized in that context with this man found guilty well, some, and charged as stated. So, something like that. Uh, the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, didn't open its doors until 2002, and so that was after... Milosevic had been convicted, sure. but what the what the uh, so-called allies, the NATO uh, allies that were bombing Yugoslavia, did was mm -hmm. create an ad hoc court to try him. They said we're going to we're going to create our own war crimes tribunal court and try Milosevic in front of it, which they did. Uh, yeah. And but notice what what this means. You know, a group of nations can come together. And because they have power and no, and there's no constitution, nothing guiding them, nothing preventing them from doing whatever they want, a group of nations creates their own court, and and the court, it's like a kangaroo. And, and then they bring someone before yes. it, and they decide he's guilty, and they then they call it justice, right? Because this is what that group of nations wanted to happen. Yes. 
you know, real justice is impartial, right? Real justice is not implemented by the victors in a war, right? Real justice means we have a, an impartial world judiciary, which we have under Article 9 of the Earth Constitution, and the, there's a procedure by which the eminent judges are, are, are uh, recruited to that, you know, impartial and democratic, and the court sits independently of of any government, and it has authority uh, to to uh, actually make uh, enforceable decisions of what comes before it. Uh, it's not a you know an arbitrary court uh, uh, created by the winners in a war. You know, yes, it's a big difference. Indeed. Yeah. Let's let uh, take a moment and uh, let everyone know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every week talking about matters having to do with uh, progressive thinking and especially in respect to health and the earth and the environment and well-being, sustainability. We talk about everything here. I interview the sung and the unsung heroes of society. We have a weekly newsletter that you can get and sign up for at our website, www.abetterworld.tv. In it, you will find what we will be covering both on the radio show every week as well as the community TV show aired here in New York and through that same website everywhere. If you tune in at the time it's being aired in New York City, which is every Monday at 7 p.m., you can watch it from wherever you happen to be. And we appreciate your listening and tuning in to what we're covering here at A Better World. Today we are speaking with Dr. Glenn Martin about the Federation of the Earth Constitution, the United Nations, means of creating a global governance, a body that would supersede the sovereignty of all nations, yet the nations remain intact as a means of creating world peace, world justice, and respect for Mother Earth herself. So I welcome your all of your words, Glenn, today. It's so interesting. I'd love to circle back to your reference to the military. And in a world today, if you were able to implement the Earth Constitution in place of the current UN Charter, or you were to go through those tiers you mentioned that are in the Earth Constitution of first 25 nations and then double or so and then triple or so so that it actually really gained momentum and world recognition and that it get ratified how would you deal with the chaos you mentioned israel and palestine for instance or what we have going on in yemen or afghanistan and pakistan and kashmir and all over Africa, and there are, what do they say, 71 to 80 different wars. They call them armed conflicts these days. A little rhetorical switch. Oh, did I lose my guest here? 
I think I must have lost him for a moment. Um, I hope he comes back and joins us because this is an important question here. Uh, I'm heading toward asking him how, uh, let's see here, let me try to get him right back, come back on. (laughs) So, sometimes this happens with telephones, of course, they just drop out. But uh, the question is, and I think it would be on everybody's mind, in a world that has been so steeped in war and militarism, almost like a religion, uh, for so long, really, for over a hundred years, how do we, even with agreements in place and ratification of such an agreement, step out of our current militarized world and go back in to uh, a place of peace? And how would we do that? Okay. <laughs> Mitch, I think Glenn, I, we got cut off. We lost you there for a moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't glad know you're happened, back. But... Me neither, but I'm glad you're back. So I was posing the question that since we have picking up on, perhaps you heard me say this, the question of eradicating a military. Uh, yes. In a world that where we have some 70 to 80 armed conflicts, they call them these days, <laughs> some kind of yes. strange rhetoric, uh, but essentially yeah. wars between nations, between cults, between religious groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, from Yemen and Palestine and Israel, as you mentioned earlier, Afghanistan, Kashmir, These are just the ones that grab some headlines. But there are many, many more in different parts of Africa and elsewhere. How do you propose we have been, in a sense, conditioned to think militarily? We talk about militarism like it's a religion or a a bad cult, a bad dream, you know. How do you propose, because... Human beings are are creatures of habit. How would you propose, Glenn, pulling us out of the militaristic headset with these wars raging now? And even if we went through this multi-tiered system of 25 nations and 50 and 75 and 100 nations per the Constitution and ratified it internationally, how would you propose the real nuts and bolts of moving us out of the mindset of war and also underneath there's a psychological and emotional headset and heart set, if you will, behind war of people feeling deprived that they don't have enough sense of self-worth, sense of injustice, on and on and on. Yes. Yes, yeah, that's that's true. It's a, it, yeah, I mean, what you're pointing out, Mitch, is that it is a terrible problem. It's worldwide, and it's very serious. And uh, um, yes, uh, and and uh, 
does the very seriousness of it, uh, I think, points to the fact that we human beings have to really, really wrap our minds about around how we can stop it, right? Because yeah. we're yeah. we're faced with possible extinction from climate collapse that's just going on, and we're For sure. as you we all you know we all know we're faced with the possibility of nuclear holocaust even today. Right? Mm-hmm. The bulletin of atomic scientist has put the doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight. You know, the combination yeah. of climate crisis and nuclear yes. holocaust. Well, you know, so so I think that uh, there's a new consciousness, a global consciousness that's spreading rapidly around the planet. We're experiencing this in WCPA. People are joining our organization like MAD in countries around the mm-hmm. world. But uh, it's larger than that. There are many websites that where people say, I'm a world citizen, or they talk about one world now or mm-hmm. a world parliament. Uh, and and uh, I think people are beginning to realize that we've got to solve this problem quickly and as rapidly yes. and as intelligently as possible. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that. I just so we may have a disparity, Glenn, between our wishes and aspirations and visions for a beautiful future and the current state of not all people, as you're bearing witness, so many people are signing up for your organization, so many people are declaring themselves as world citizens instead of just with a national identity, on and on. There are also, I mean, there are people who are um, extending their sense of identity to um, to the galaxy. You know, it even goes yeah. beyond the, yeah, the boundaries of Earth yeah. herself. Uh, it's all very interesting. It's just that there is a subset of people who, you know, it is religion-related to some extent, not wholly, of course, where we have warring factions. And, you know, I'm going to just cite, if you will, uh, Sharia law, which stands in direct contradiction to virtually all the useful universal laws laid out as you've been describing. How do you reckon with this kind of thing? Um, I, I just want to point out that we have many members in Bangladesh, which is a Muslim country, uh, yes. and that many of those members are believing Islamic uh, um, adherents, and and there's no necessity that one interpret the Quran in those traditional ways, you know, uh, like mm-hmm. like any scripture, the Bible itself, you know. Including so, the Bible, but, uh, for sure, the Old Testament. What it, do, what it does for, you know, it, it gives these brutal punishments, you know, and so on. And uh, yeah, so today, many, many religious people today uh, see things as, as symbolic or, or aspects of the religion as is historically outdated and you know and i just yeah. want to point that out because we do have lots of muslims who are members of wcpa uh yeah. and see that we need a, a world government where everybody works together and so on um but uh you know if we can get we i don't think it can, we can solve this problem 
without real enforceable law, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of people, uh, you know, heads of nations who are doing war, the heads of the the uh, heads of Saudi Arabia who are bombing Yemen and so on, uh, they need to be arrested, right, and put on yes. trial if they're violating the world law and and so under article 17 the the first stage as as i said is 25 nations and those 25 nations will they they don't have to get rid of their military right away but they start coordinating uh um and uh not spending more on military and pledging uh to one another uh because they're now a common government over all of them so so the uh war disappears between them by the time you get to the according to article 17 by the time you get to the second stage then they have put in place procedures by which the nations begin to disarm in a systematic and controlled way where nobody feels vulnerable and so on right so you get rid mm-hmm. of the weapons that way and and in the first stage, they, if there's weapons of mass destruction, they have to immediately get rid of those and turn them over, you know, nuclear weapons. Including so nuclear uh, weapons. Yes, absolutely. So so what we're looking at, right, is, a, is again, a movement that is growing for enforceable world law under the Earth Constitution – but that is going to have to be simultaneously a kind of public relations message to the world, saying to the world, look at, you know, we're doing it. It can be done. You can, yes. you can now save all this money if you join us and start disarming and instead of wasting, you know, billions of dollars on weapons that you, you will be secure because we're creating a world of peace that's not militarized with enforceable law by the civilian world police. And, and uh, so the, the growth of the force of law uh, ideally is going to be accompanied by a message to the humanity that let's solve our problems once for once and for all and make this place a decent peaceably uh, yes. place that our children can inherit you know a, a decent world order yes indeed and yes, uh, indeed. by by the third stage right once the world government is is included all the nations 90% at least uh then there'll be no more weapons of war in the world right the mm-hmm. uh, constitution makes the world the civilian world police into peacekeepers. And there's also other agencies which are peacekeepers, mediators. The Constitution says specifically that if people have conflict with other people, they need to be allowed to work out their differences in a safe and open environment uh, where everybody can uh, 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 air their grievances openly, and there's no threat of violence, and so on. And so you're creating you're creating peace mediating institutions around the world to end this misunderstanding and misjudgment and 
all these things that cause now cause conflict in the world, uh, including the conflict between religions, right? If people, uh, if in thoughtful Islamic people talk with thoughtful people of other religions, they can come to mutual understanding because I've studied these religions as a philosopher, and I know mm-hmm. that their their ultimate ideals are very similar. Very true. You know, you know, Look at the Parliament yeah. of Religions. That's a, an excellent yes. example, a living example of how people, leaders and others of the various religions get along. Look at the interfaith That's right. movement. Look at the interspirituality movement. All of these are beautiful examples of how people are hungry actually to get along with people of different religious and spiritual paths that's the world i thankfully live in in new york city and in my larger including you know international community of a better world you know so i personally am familiar with this and it's no stranger to me it's strange actually that it wouldn't be this way except that that's yeah. just kind of the world we live in and not, you know, necessarily you and me so much. Another question I'd like to bring up, Glenn, is George Bush Sr. was a great advocate of what was known as the One World Order. That was, I believe, um, under girded by the Council of Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, right. if I'm not mistaken. However, right. the ideas, the ideas, some of the, even though I found it very unsavory on so many levels, there was also an interesting appeal because the appeal has some similarities to what you're saying. How could you help our audience discern and distinguish between that old conversation, which sort of lost its traction at a certain point, and what Thank you're God. talking about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> y- yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, the, the, uh, the one world order of George Bush Sr. Uh, was a, uh, a, an attempt to create a global authority transcending the nations that represented the elite of the world, as as George Bush himself did, the trilateral and commission was yeah represented part of the elite yeah yeah the, yeah, the big cor- corporations and the big banking concerns and the banking concerns of the world the big ones are all private banks, private mm-hmm. profit-making institutions. Sure. Uh, the all world the way up to the Federal a, Reserve Bank. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so it was an elite attempt, and I think the attempt is still in the works. It, you know, it might uh, someday come to fruition to, to uh, uh, secure a system of domination which is not going to get rid of war, certainly. The dominators will continue to oppress and exploit and so on. We're talking about something that is the direct opposite of that. We're talking about global democracy in which the authority comes from the people of Earth. The the Article 2 says the people of Earth are sovereign, right? Not not nations, not rich people. The people of Earth together 
have the sovereignty. They have the right to govern themselves. And uh, uh, so what we're working towards is something that really has never existed in history, but history is coming to a crisis. You know, it's coming to a turning point. Either we're going to, either we're going to destroy ourselves on this planet through nuclear war or climate class collapse, or we're going to join together in authentic democracy and dethrone the billionaires and the corporations and the big private banks now, this is a key point, Mitch, that I just want to yes. mention before I forget Please. it. Uh, okay. Article 8.7 8. Uh, of the Earth Constitution creates global public banking. Because oh, banking really okay. I, you you read my mind. I was about to go there and uh, to the corporatocracy. Uh-huh. So, good. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Global public banking. So, that uh, which means that uh, probably a guaranteed annual income for everybody on Earth, you know, just to have a little card, to, uh, because mm-hmm. uh, um, there won't, there certainly is not jobs for everybody now, and there won't be in the future. But it also means that that the uh, banking will no longer be controlled by a, an elite that has this immense power over nations mm-hmm. and over. Uh, corporations sure. and so on and and uh, i think that's fundamental yes indeed that's so important yeah. do you know the work of ellen brown on public public banking? i do i i know Excellent. ellen brown personally yes me too sure we're yes. both on the uh, global advisory board of ethical markets by the green economist and futurist hazel henderson so oh, very uh, nice. we were very good. there a few years ago in a retreat together, and I have immense respect for her work. And uh, good. I'm yes. glad to hear of that alignment. That makes a perfect sense. I'm not at all surprised. I'm glad to hear it. So mm-hmm. in a practical way, uh, I hear all that you're saying, and I just like to bring around the uh, lofty and and humanistic ideals of the Constitution uh, around to, let's specifically, because we are running out of time here, to the issue of global warming, where through A Better World, I spend a lot of time dealing with this, largely educating people, as well as through different business um, activities, working on local and global scales to create a more uh, renewable-based economy instead of fossil fuel and numerous other things. I don't want to take our time with that right now. But yeah. I'm, I'm deeply involved in that process because, to me, this is numero uno of all of the issues with which we are currently dealing as a planet. Yeah. And I just, you know, it's utterly riveted my attention, as I know it has also yours. So... Looking at that, Glenn, how would you propose through the, let's say, the ratification of the of the Constitution, would the nations go about and the Federation go through the process of raising the money and making the decisions, which if you have a thousand people in one of the three 
branches, if you will, how in the world do you propose to get something done quickly and effectively? Because now, as we uh, so well know, yeah. the ice is melting yeah. and the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, uh, the the thousand people are working within the framework of the Constitution that empowers them and even directs them to take this, these steps. Uh, uh, the the Constitution creates the Earth Emergency Rescue Administration as is one of the agencies. Uh, because they realize that it's an emergency, but uh, yes. uh, the the they define this. The, the world parliament will define the standards. Or the world government will define the standards. Uh, environmental conditions for the world. Uh, it is empowered to regulate uh, the recycling of natural resources of the earth, and. Uh, to develop and implement the means to control population growth in relation to the life support capacities of the earth. I'm reading from Article 4 on these things. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. It, uh, it can administer the oceans and the seabeds of the earth and protect them from all damage. It, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is responsible for the atmosphere of the earth and protect it from damage. Uh, mm-hmm. And Article 4.27, I don't know if you've read uh, our Buckminster Fuller, Bucky Fuller on these things, but... Space, manual uh, for Spaceship Earth, yes, when I was a that's teenager. That's right. <laughs> okay. He, he recommends uh, transnational power, uh, clean energy power systems. He says we have the capacity on the Earth to link up whole continents through transnational power systems and give everybody sure. cheap, clean energy. And, and a 4.27 says exactly that. Coordinate transnational power systems or networks of small uh, integra- uh, units to integrate uh, sun, wind, water, tides, heat differ- differentials, and any source of safe, ecologically sound, and continuing ener- energy supply. See, it's, it, 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 in other words, what's happening here is that the Constitution is directing the world parliament to make these things mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and I think it, Tesla yeah, came it, up with the idea of equitable energy distribution umpteen years ago, 100 or so years ago. And J.P. Morgan, who was funding him when he heard that idea, interestingly enough, decided to yank his funding. So. Uh, interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so any, wouldn't so surprise anyway, anybody. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So you know the and and the, so you, you have know, means and methods of addressing these items that are so very specific critical. Yes. Mission critical, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that perhaps one of the issues that you find yourself facing is the differential, if you will, between where we are in our human development and evolution and the high-minded, big-hearted values and even um, uh, uh, points, tenets of the Constitution. And 
there's a bit of a disparity based on lots of reasons having nothing to do with the value and the validity and the aspiration of the Constitution, but rather where people are, even though I I see this as well. There is a growing awareness and uh, attention to the matters at hand, both from the point of view of governance as well as dealing with the humanitarian, social justice, and environmental issues that are so... Uh, uh, profound at this point in time. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. So what would you, last idea you would like to leave with our audience to fertilize our minds so we can uh, perhaps take a next step in the direction you've been sharing with us, Glenn? Well, uh, two things. I'd like people to look up the Earth Constitution and study it. You know, uh, our uh, it's it's absolutely fundamental. It's called the Constitution for the Federation of Earth, and it's online and so on. The second thing, uh, my most recent book that came out last year is called Global Democracy and Human Self-Transcendence. And I think that we have within us, as human beings, this immense potential for self-transcendence. And I try to articulate mm-hmm. that in the book. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's possible in history, human beings have changed their attitudes at various times radically in a short time. And I'm thinking yeah. that we have this capacity. We're faced with these pressures, pressure of wars, and the, as you're pointing out, and the pressure of the environment. And and this, I'm, I'm thinking that since we have within us this capacity for self-transcendence and, and radical growth to what I call planetary maturity, that now is the time. We need to do it. It needs to happen. And the Constitution itself is is a catalyst to – it's both a means and an end, right? If we yeah. promote the Earth Constitution, it'll be a means by which we can grow ourselves and transform to truly planetary citizens. So that's my idea. I love it. <laughs> yes, well, I really, really appreciate that. I'm reminded of a book I read many moons ago called Giving Up the Gun. And it is about when the Portuguese tried to take over Japan uh, during the uh-huh. samurai culture in approximately the 16th century, I believe it was. And uh, they brought guns, and they used guns as a means of taking it over. They didn't succeed, and eventually the samurai, you know, sent the Portuguese on their way and left guns and uh, onshore of Japan. And the Japanese, being who they are, took those guns and figured out a way to actually improve them, and, uh, which they did. Uh-huh. And uh, it's interesting because the yeah. samurai, who of course were in charge, they were the military arm, but also the spiritual yeah. uh, essence in many ways of the culture and protecting both the body politic as well as the culture itself, which was rich with the arts and with its uh, right. spiritual fundamentals um, found that they were just knocking each other off left, right, and sideways with these guns from the West and there was no honor and there was no longer any dignity and no longer any integrity 
in the yeah. protection that they sought to provide their protectorates. And so they yeah. collectively came together and decided to abolish and abandon the use of guns, which I'd like to bring this up to Congress, by the way, in the NRA, and yeah. abandon yeah. guns yeah. because they had no honor and dignity in them. Isn't that interesting? That's that's it. That is, and that's what we need to do as a planet: get rid of exactly. the weapons of war, right? That's and, right. And, and but once, I wanted to we, say we there's a precedent and an antecedent to this yeah, in his, in the historical record, and I cite this rather frequently to let people know that, as you were saying, an attitude change, a behavior change can occur it's happened before and it will happen again and uh that's right it's it's good news it's good news so very good well i want to thank you i want to thank you so much for the good work that you've been doing for so long i mean if you and i met it's got to be something like 20 or so years ago uh you've been at it and well i've been at it too so yeah uh, if you get me a copy of your uh, latest book, you know, a review copy, we can talk about um, discussing that on the air as well. I'd love to share that with you. I'd be happy to. As well. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank Beautiful. you for having me on. Absolutely. Good talking with you. Thank you so much for your good okay. work and for uh, sharing with us today. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Okay, bye. Dr. Glenn Martin, uh, professor of philosophy at Radford University in Virginia for many, many years. He's the founder and chair, chair emeritus of the program in peace studies, which he began at Radford. As I mentioned before, also, he is the president of the International Philosophers for Peace and president of the World Constitution and Parliament Association, which has been the uh, basis of our conversations today. What you can glean from this is actually so much, but one thing in particular is that there are people like Glenn and others, his colleagues and associates and friends worldwide, other professors, other uh, leaders in different religious groups that have been working assiduously at how to create peace on the planet and go beyond the norms that we have established that if my way or the highway, bang, bang. I mean, this is so primitive. It's so barbaric. And hopefully, based on the work that Glenn and his groups have been doing and the work and values of things like A Better World, and there are many of us out there, we can shift the consciousness and shift the behavior patterns and the attitudes. So war is not a necessity. It is not a requirement for resolving conflict. It never has been. And I think that probably Glenn and I were thinking back when we were teenagers along the same lines because I went into the field of psychology really because of the Vietnam War and watching adults uh, – manage that, manage what are disagreements or what they call conflicts. I was a little too naive at the time and young to recognize the economic uh, aspect of war. I didn't take me long to get it, but I didn't have it at first. I thought that they were actually ideological issues at hand instead of economic. 
I learned, but uh, but it was enough to drive me into the field of psychology because I felt that adults were so confused and distraught that they could not think clearly and put their values in right, proper order. And I felt that my best contribution to the world would be to work with people psychologically and emotionally to get them online and aligned with what I later discovered as Taoist science, if you will, of being in alignment with and in accordance to nature. And uh, that has been a, uh, a real basis of so much of what I've been doing for so long. And that has morphed its way into my work in media and a better world as an organization as well. So I'm just drawing what I believe is a parallel between the parties here. Uh, so another way of just saying how much I appreciate uh, the work that Glenn Martin has been doing for that length of time <clears throat> and has stayed with it. There are those of us who have stayed with it and have not given up and simply gotten awash in the values of the times which are largely materialistic and tend to swallow people whole, including their soul. So Glenn Martin and many of his colleagues, some of whom I have had the opportunity to meet back when he and I first met at a UN-related event, uh, have maintained themselves in the face of tremendous opposition through the past 30 to 40 years and the warlike values that have come to dominate our society. So uh, it's with great respect and appreciation of the work of Glenn Martin and his colleagues and the people who are part of the uh, Federation of the Earth Constitution, its makers, etc. Interesting point he made that all of this really evolved out of the work of women back during World War One. That was another interesting fact that I was not aware of. So uh, <laughs> everything circles back to women, eh? It could well be the truth and that feminine principle which brings us together that is the heart of compassion in us all uh, and once that gets awakened uh, miracles really can happen so I want to thank all of you for tuning in today and uh, getting the uh, gist of a better world remember we're a 501c3 a nonprofit. your donations and contributions to us help keep us on the air and ever expanding and being sustainable here so we always appreciate it if you want to make donations just write to me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net mjr at abetterworld.net not to mention i love hearing from you and getting your comments about our shows please share them with your friends family <clears throat> and colleagues we so appreciate it get on to our free newsletter at a better world TV. And if you have any thoughts and suggestions, we always love to listen and hear. We also do promotions. I do personal and executive coaching, mainly in the space of personal and planetary health and sustainability. And we have a series of really interesting organic 
products to help with health and well-being, and you can find all of those on our websites, abetterworld.tv and mitchellrabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening. This is Mitchell J. Rabin, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.